Welcome to Twisted States Podcast, where every week we go state by state and look at some of America's most nefarious killers, elusive cryptids, and bizarre mysteries. I'm your host, Reagan, and this week, week eight of Twisted States, we are headed to North Dakota. North Dakota was either the 39th or the 40th state to join the Union. I couldn't tell you exactly because nobody really knows. At the time, President Benjamin Harrison shuffled the paperwork so that nobody would know. And I don't even think he was aware of which state actually comes first. So for the most part, people just look at it like alphabetically. So 39th. Anyway, it's a fairly quiet (laughs) place. Uh, not a lot of people really visit South Dakota. It's not, you know, it's 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 not a big tourist area. It's not very highly populated. It's like the fourth uh, least populated state uh, in the United States. And uh, there's not a whole lot that really goes on in North Dakota. Recently, I believe in 2012, the oil industry really blew up in, in North Dakota and... Um, you know, other than like the world's largest buffalo statue and the world's largest Holstein cow statue, uh, there's not a, a whole lot going on there. So yeah, it's pretty, pretty chill, pretty quiet. Uh, it's, I've been there. It's been a long time since I've been there. I just remember that it was, it was pretty peaceful. It was quiet and, uh, you know, just kind of flat. <laughs> It wasn't too bad. I don't have anything bad to say about North Dakota other than those brutal winters. Like it gets really, really cold up there being that it's so far north, it borders Canada to the north and yeah, uh, our Canada borders the north of North Dakota. What am I saying? I don't know. Don't mind me. So yeah, it's, it's definitely up there and it's, it's chilly. It gets a bit, a bit chilly up there. Okay, let's go ahead and get into the meat of this and what we're here for. The goodies. Okay. So when researching North Dakota, I I honestly can say I couldn't find a lot uh, happening there. It's a very, North Dakota is a very chill state with not a lot of really anything going on uh, too crazy. And um, the only thing that really popped out to me was this one story. And it really stood out, though, because, like, there's just no answers. This is the most bizarre, like, I I don't know. I'll tell you the story and you tell me what you think. And let me just preface this by saying when I was doing the research, every story was conflicting. Okay, there's a lot of different versions of this and a lot of different, uh, well, you'll see what I mean. It definitely is kind of all over the place, but it's very interesting, very intriguing either way. So today we're going to talk about Eugene Butler. He was born in 1848 in Niagara, New York. Now, I really didn't find a whole lot of information as far as his past up to the point of um, him acquiring land 
in Niagara, North Dakota, and the uh, Grand Forks County area in 18, uh, 1880. Apparently, somebody approached him uh, while he was still in his hometown, and uh, him and several other uh, men, and said, hey, you know what, there's, if you all go up here and like work this land, you can have free land in North Dakota. We'll set you up with enough to build yourself a decent homestead. So he said, well, absolutely. And he was a quiet man. He stayed to himself for the most part, uh, pretty much a hermit, kind of reclusive. He would hire people to work his farm for him during the summer months, but the rest of the time he was just pretty quiet. And, but slowly he started getting a little weird. Um, like I said, he moved to that area in, in 1880. But by the, by the closer to the turn of the, the century, he started acting really peculiar. He was having all of these crazy delusions. And he was constantly telling everybody how all of the women there, every woman was after him. Like there was a problem with the level of, you know, like that women were just hard pursuing him. And he didn't like, he couldn't handle that, that everybody was just after him wanting to be with him. And you know, it's like, okay, well, he was a little delusional or whatever, you know, no, but like he was to the point where they felt it safest to put him in a facility because he was just so delusional about not just that, there were a lot of other things that he was, he was doing. Okay. So you're probably asking yourself, yeah, so what's the big deal? So he thought a lot of women were after him and there might've been some women after him. You know, I mean, here's this this guy, he's alone. He's got this big homestead. You know, he's really successful. He's got some money and he's doing all right for himself. So what's the big deal? Well, oh, well, it wasn't, like I said, it wasn't just that. There was a lot of other things he was doing. He got to the point where in the middle of the night, he would get on his horse and he would ride back and forth across the whole county, just riding his horse like a maniac all night long. And, you know, nothing like Boonhelm, like he wasn't doing all the crazy crap that Boonhelm was doing, but he was riding his horse all night. And they kind of gave him, you know, the the nickname, his moniker was uh, Midnight Rider, you know, like Paul Revere style, <laughs> like that was what, you know, they used to refer to him as because he would be out, the, be out there riding his horse around in the middle of the night. And just doing a lot of out of character things and just acting bizarre. Nothing that seemed like harmful to anyone other than the possibility of maybe him harming himself. And being that that region has like such harsh winters and stuff, if somebody's not completely of their faculties in that region, there's a chance that he could, you know, end up like freezing to death or whatever, or if his needs aren't met. And then of course he did have a homestead that needed hending and he was unable to do all of this stuff because he was just kind of, you know, a little, little cuckoo, a little out there. Um, they said that uh, in 1906, when he was committed to Jamestown uh, Asylum, that he was the richest person to have been committed to that asylum. He had, he was worth roughly about $40,000 and that's like 1.5 million in current 
day money. And he had like money laying around his house and gold and checks and whatever. And, and, uh, yeah, he definitely, he wasn't hurting for money. He spent seven years in the asylum and then he ended up passing away in 1911. Some places say he passed away in 1913, but I actually found information on find a grave and a couple of the websites that verify that yes, he did pass in 1911. Now, um, his place, so another family ended up purchasing his homestead and it was, uh, just a small family, a man and a woman and their, and their child, uh, Leo and Lottie. They moved there from Appleton, Wisconsin and in June of 1915, 25-year-old Leo was doing just some routine excavation. He was digging up along the side of the house and discovered a, a skeleton. And he dug a little bit more and discovered that under the crawl space there was a there was a trapdoor. It from that went from the house into the crawl space down below. And there was not just the one body, but there were actually six bodies in total. Now, there wasn't, I mean, this was a big deal. Like Niagara at the time, Niagara, North Dakota, had a population of 157, okay? Very small, tight-knit community. So, of course, this just rocked the whole area like nobody what <laughs> you know and like I said he lived Niagara his his homestead was right it was between Shawnee and Niagara and when news spread that they found bodies buried under his house um, a lot of people from the area went there to go see what what the deal was or whatever went there in person well the the most unfortunate part of that was that i guess this was just a different no i guess people would probably do the same thing now if given the chance because people are strange humans are weird people humans are weird they looted the bodies like the bodies the bones of the people buried under his house people stole them took them for souvenirs and I just, that weirds me out. So originally, the idea was that these were possibly men that had worked for him because there was nobody missing from the community. Okay, it wasn't like, you know, oh, so-and-so down the street hasn't been heard from in the past like seven years or whatever. Well, it must have been, well, now we know what happened to him, you know, like there was nothing. And then the bodies were completely stripped of everything. There was no clothing, no nothing, no shoes, no buttons, no wallets, no belts, no nothing. They were completely stripped down nude and they had all been uh, murdered with like by blunt force trauma with some kind of an object like one time to the head. And, uh, that makes me think of that, the, 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 the thing that they used to put down 
like livestock or whatever, the punch. I don't know. I What was that movie? <laughs> That's what it makes me think of is uh, that thing. But yeah, so, but all these people had been put down and stripped and buried under the house. At first, like I said, they, they assumed automatically that it was just some men that had worked for him. And there was like one body that was buried by itself and then five of them were buried together. Well, in researching old newspaper articles um, from around the time that this was discovered, there was there was some articles printed in July of 1915. I'll put links in the description for all of this stuff. So if you want to go check out those articles and some of the information I found, every bit of research information, I always include the links in the description. So you can go and check those out if you'd like to see them. But uh, they stated in there that originally they had thought that these were all men and come to find out it was actually a man, a woman, three children, and then a separate adult man. So it appears that it was a family. And there's been a lot of speculation. Some people thought that maybe he had hired a family of people as like house servants or whatever, and that that's who those people were. But... They never, they still haven't been able to figure out anything. There was one, uh, now don't get this confused because Leo is also the person, the name of the person that discovered the bodies, but there was another man named Leo uh, Urbanski. Uh, he also went by Leo Miller. That was a, a saloon keep and a businessman from, I believe he was from Missouri. They say that there's a possibility that one of those men, he might've been one of the men that they found because he had mentioned going to see Eugene Butler or work for some guy on a homestead in that area or whatever, and then disappeared and was never heard from again. So they believe that there's a possibility that he was one of the victims. And... You know, this is a really long-running cold case, and it's really bizarre because, like, we don't know. I mean, and for me, like, this is where where I get really, like, <laughs> it stresses me out. Okay, so hear me out here, okay? So this guy, he was locked away for seven years before he passed away in an asylum. He was constantly in, in contact with people. He, you know talked to people all the time. I'm sure he talked to like doctors and therapists and stuff while he was there and everything and other people that he was locked up with or whatever. And he had all kinds of like delusions and stuff. And so he wasn't really in tune with reality for the most part, but at no point did he mention killing people. Like, they say that that wasn't his demeanor at all, and that that wasn't his thing at all. He wasn't violent, and he was like this kind of small, kind of gaunt man, and he never mentioned anything about, you know, anything to do with murdering people or having people buried under his house. So, like, my question is, it's like, did did he do it? Did he know about it? Maybe that's why he went crazy. Maybe it was somebody else that did it. Maybe, you know what I mean? Like, there's maybe the knowledge of this happening was what threw him over the edge versus him actually being the one that did it. 
I, I don't know. I mean, I maybe I'm completely out of left field with that and it makes no sense to anybody else. But like, that was my thought. I'm like, did he actually do this? Like his place sat empty for a long time or, you know, whatever was going on with it, because there's not a real clear picture that there could have been somebody else tending the place or whatever, you know, I mean, and I don't, I don't suspect the people that bought the place, obviously, because they found the bodies and they'd only been there a short time when that occurred. And, you know, that kind of thing from my understanding. So I don't think it's like, oh, what, what the what are these bodies from? Well, it must have been the guy that had the place before. You know, it wasn't like that from what I understand. But there was just a long gap of time. And the fact that he never said anything about it, like that just, you know, in all of his, his issues, I thought that was really bizarre. So... In 2016, there was a new uh, resurgence of interest in this. And law enforcement in North Dakota, once again, I will have links to everything down below or in the description, depending on where you're listening to this at. If you're watching it on YouTube, it'll be in the description down below. If you are watching this on any of the major podcast platforms, it'll be in the show notes. But uh, North Dakota law enforcement... Uh, in 2016, once again, was reaching out, pleading to the public. If anybody knows any information, you know, I mean, uh, a family member's diary, an old, you know, tale passed down through generations, uh, you know, I mean, six bodies worth of skeletons disappeared, were looted, were taken by people. So the assumption would be that somebody somewhere might be sitting on a bone from one of those victims. And that would give the opportunity possibly to get that DNA tested and find out at least some kind of information as to the origin of these people, or at least one of these people, you know. So any information... And it's such a long shot being that it was, you know, a hundred years ago, <laughs> plus over a hundred years ago now, but stranger things have happened. You know what I mean? Like somebody might actually know something or have some kind of information or whatever. And that would be, that would be amazing. I mean, there's not a whole lot. There's a couple of other random like encounters and things that have happened in North Dakota as far as, you know serial killers go but this was like the first one yeah, and it happened early on in the states you know statehood <laughs> i guess uh like it was it was just a very very bizarre thing and it's just really sad that these six souls have no you know had no rest it's really really unfortunate that people would do such a horrific thing as to go like I'm more upset about the people that looted the body parts than I am like you know <laughs> with Eugene Butler because we don't even know for a fact whether or not he actually killed these people it could have been somebody else that was working for him he could have not known anything about any of it so I don't know I mean maybe I'm just wrong here but who knows will we ever know I mean, probably not, but 
there's always that hope. There's always that that chance for that long shot of somebody having some kind of information somewhere, uh, you know, and I think that would be just amazing. And it's really weird to me, too, because like there's families that have been there forever, you know, you would think that somebody would know something or have some kind of, I mean, small communities are usually pretty like, even if people kind of like say to themselves, they don't really. And being that it's as like the way it is there as far, you know, it's not like now where he could just like order all of his stuff from Amazon and get it delivered. Like he would have had to have had a lot more like interactions with other people in the, in the area and stuff. And, people kind of kept up on each other a little bit more, you know? I mean, so maybe maybe there's somebody that knows some of the people that worked for him a little bit better and, you know, can verify, like maybe find out some information about those people, whether or not they disappeared or whether or not they, like, showed back up to their families after working for him or whatever. You know, I mean, there's a lot. There's a whole lot of, of stuff there, but... I'm just going off on a tangent on this because it just breaks my brain. It really does. And it's very, it's a very unfortunate story. And just, I, what? <laughs> so anyway, but that is, that's, that's what I've got for you. That's the story of Eugene Butler. And he went from being the, being known as the, the Midnight Rider, going out riding his horse, you know, Paul Revere style, back and forth across the county like a crazy person, to being known as the Great Plains Butcher. So, yeah, that's a quite a bit of a change there. Well, that's going to do it for week eight of Twisted States. Thank you for joining me. And... I will see you next week. And by the way, please be sure to hop on over to Instagram and check out Twisted States and throw me a follow if you're up to it. And if you have any input, questions, anything, concerns, whatever, please feel free to message me on Instagram at Twisted States and give me your feedback, anything you want to contribute to the show, any any ideas, thoughts, grievances, <laughs> whatever you've got, please reach out to me there and I will definitely get back to you ASAP. It's actually an account to keep track of versus a lot of my other socials for my other uh, things that I do. I'm really, really bad about, but I get the alerts on my phone for that. So... <laughs> I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, guys, I'm trying. Anyway, all right, so um, thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Bye.